0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to Mass Office Hours. Today is Wednesday, the 14th of February. You are watching us live on YouTube, maybe, or you're listening later on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, We are excited for tonight's show, and of course, I feel like I kind of have to acknowledge uh, the big holiday on everybody's mind. So Monday the 12th was Darwin Day. Mike, what did you do for Darwin Day?
1: on uh, Monday the 12th I uh, woke up and I thought to myself I better text trucks because it's Darwin day mm-hmm. and uh, it was really the first thing I had a reminder was it was I, I covered up all my son's homework on the fridge and I put a magnet with text trucks about Darwin day and that's what I did and and you know obviously I wrote you right away thought about it a lot and and wanted to wish you well that day so um hopefully the fact that I remembered meant a lot to you It did. Yeah. um, Now that I'm in a department of
0: evolutionary anthropology, you can imagine my surprise when Monday I went into our mail room to check the mail, had some supplies coming in for a study, and I found a life-size cardboard cutout of Charles Darwin. Uh, We're doing our big celebration Friday night as a department. I have no idea what we have in store, but uh, happy Darwin Day to everybody. And also a lesser known holiday tonight is Valentine's Day. Uh, at least in the United States. I don't know how, uh, I don't think it's recognized abroad. But um, as of recording this, Mike and I are both happily married to lovely people. We'll see if that holds. Um, I think doing this show tonight puts both of us in a precarious position in that regard. And I'm sure everyone listening live on YouTube is in a similar precarious position. So I want to thank everyone for risking the most important thing in their life to be with us
1: live tonight. Well, we we all have each other. And uh, that's that's what it's all about. I'd like to add one thing on Valentine's Day, which is that if you're wondering if the second grade classrooms give out candy on Valentine's Day, the answer is an extraordinary amount. My son came home with no less than four bags. What do you mean by bag? What are we talking? Like, about? like little, like little paper bags, like like maybe that oh, big. Okay, yeah, like bigger than a bags. sandwich bag. Yeah, yeah, like like somebody clearly still had halloween candy from however many months ago and uh they all threw it in there needed to get it out of their house we we gave um sonic the hedgehog valentine's um you know the little like this big you write the name you know two you know and uh i i thought that was a good way to go um but apparently four bags of candy that we will never eat and uh now we have it but that was that was school today so did you do any work today buddy Said no, just party. Okay.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, your Florida tax dollars at work, getting a good uh, Valentine's Day party. And there it is. All right. Um, if you like the show and you want to support us uh, on on this lovely holiday, there's a lot of ways you could do it. You could like, rate, subscribe, and review our show wherever you happen to get it. Uh, you could tell a friend or better, uh, share it with a friend. Send them a link to our YouTube, Spotify, Apple podcast page, whatever you prefer, Uh, if you want to participate in the show there's a couple ways you can do that you can use the link in the description of this video to submit a question 24 hours a day 365 days a year Uh, we are in that spreadsheet looking at those questions on a very regular basis but of course the best way to participate is to join us live on youtube every wednesday night 7 p.m eastern time you can join us live in the chat ask the questions on your mind and I think the the most valuable thing about being live in the chat, aside from being able to see us and hear us and participate in, in current reality with us, is you can answer, you can ask follow-up questions and you can kind of elaborate and it becomes more like a conversation. So I definitely recommend if you can to join us live uh, when it suits your schedule. Uh, now, Mike, we have actual show to get into. Uh, so uh, in last week's episode... Lauren and I got a question about something that is squarely within your wheelhouse. We we're talking a little bit about cluster sets, and I kind of talked about the way I like to train when I'm either kind of bored or lacking focus or short on time. And it's not cluster sets, but it's a similar kind of thing, right? And, and so I basically am redistributing my rest. I'm doing these weird kind of mini sets with very short rest periods interspersed. And it kind of led into a question about how we put together all these different training strategies that fall under that general umbrella where we're having kind of anything that's a departure, I would say, from the typical set, rest, set paradigm where you're doing, you know, a set of 10, you rest for two to three minutes, and then you do another. Or if you're a power lifter, you do a set of three to five, you rest maybe three to five minutes, right? And then you do the next. All these different strategies like cluster sets, like myo reps, like rest redistribution sets, like supersets. Uh, We got a question about where we, how we distinguish those, where we draw the lines between them, what they're for, and and there are meaningful differences between them and the definitions sometimes for someone like me or Lauren, who's not reviewing these studies on a regular basis in mass, the definitions can be a bit difficult to parse on the fly. So all of that is to say you've prepared a a lovely segment for us. where you are going to talk through these different strategies and um, you know, like I said, the distinctions between them are important, but you know, they're, they're pretty nuanced. And so to facilitate your, uh, your segment here, I have now covered up my face. Uh, I know viewers at home are going to be upset about that, but we've got a uh, kind of a visual aid here, a little outline to, uh, to facilitate what you have to say. So, uh, the floor is officially yours, Mike. Well,
1: thanks, sir. And, uh, yeah, everybody enjoy this podcast. I'm going to string this out as long as possible. The longer I go here, the longer I'm the only one on the screen. It's more FaceTime for me, um, less FaceTime for you. Although, rest assured, Trek still looks perpetually cold in his hat and his uh, uh, you know fleece. There,
0: you're going to so, feel bad when we find out I have a thyroid problem and that's why I feel cold all the time.
1: I saw, was it. I can't remember. I saw a comment. I don't know. It was a YouTube comment. Somebody else said that. Last week on one of the episodes, and, feels I, and I was so, I, I was so excited. I was like, I've been saying this because I, I said this to you in one of our meetings like a year or two ago. So you're always looking professionally cold. So yeah. I, I was very excited to see somebody else recognize that. So in terms of these programming strategies, you know, take a step back for just a second, and I want to talk about some of the terminology that is used to introduce all of these collectively. Because we've probably heard them referred to in a little bit different way. And so just so we're all on the same page up front, I call a lot of these programming strategies, you may hear a lot of these called time efficient strategies or advanced training techniques. I think advanced training techniques is some of the terminology that's gotten into the literature a bit. Now, collectively, I I just refer to all of these, let's say, as programming strategies, because this is where we really have to delineate between an overarching theory of training or a model of periodization, and then what I would call programming. So if we start there and we have an overall theory of training or a model of periodization, this is really talking about long-term trends, or you have this overarching model and then you fit programming into it. So if we take a model where over time, we're gonna decrease volume over the course of a macro cycle and increase intensity, that is your overarching model or periodization. Now these programming strategies that we're going to talk about, it's important to understand your overall model because then you're going to fit them into that model. Meaning, if we're going to utilize something that accumulates a lot of volume in a very short amount of time and causes a lot of fatigue, a powerlifter for example isn't going to be using this strategy 2 weeks out from a competition. That individual is going to be using this strategy earlier on in that model where they have higher volume. Right? So I think that word programming is important here because the periodization or the overall structure dictates what type of programming strategy you might use or what you might fit in there. With that said, there are specifically six programming strategies here that I want to talk about tonight. And you can see those up on your screen. So if we start right here where it says strategies to discuss. We're gonna talk about rest pause. We're gonna talk about myoreps, rest redistribution sets, cluster sets, and supersets. Now I put together this conceptual overview for each of these. So we see rest pause on page one. After that, we'll go down to page two and look at reps. What I wanna do with each one is define what the terminology is, talk about when it's used, what it's trying to accomplish, give a specific example of how you can utilize it, and then how it could be practical for you. So kind of a conceptual overview. And I say this a lot in mass. And, and one thing I think is important before we get started on rest pause is that I wouldn't ever take anything for the most part to be, you have to do it exactly this way. Rather, this is a concept. And then as long as you understand that concept, you can take and adapt it to fit what you're doing. All right, so rest pause, what is this and what is this trying to accomplish? Well, the definition of rest, pause, treks would be if we're performing sets to failure or to a specified IR that's really close to failure with very short rest, so 20 to 30 seconds. Now, as you said before, traditional sets are maybe three sets of 10, and you might take a minute, two minutes, three minutes rest there. But rest, pause, sets, you can come about this in two different ways. You can pick a total number of reps to to do or a total number of sets. So let's give an example with a total number of reps. Let's say you set a goal of, I want to do 45 total reps. Well, the way you'd utilize this is you'd pick a load, let's say on a dumbbell bench press that you think you can do for 20 reps. You might perform the first set. You do that entire set, uh, let's say to failure, that's 20 reps. You take 20 to 30 seconds more rest. You do another set. Maybe you get seven or eight reps. So let's say you get eight. Now you've done 28. You take that next 20 seconds rest. Let's say you get five more reps. Now you're at 33. And you keep repeating that process until you get to 35, or excuse me, until you get to 45 reps. Another way to do that is you just set a, a set goal. So you say, I'm going to do this for a total of seven sets. And then whatever the total number of reps you get, you get. Now you have progressive overload built into that, even if you keep the same load. Because if you keep the same load and you say, I'm going to do six sets or seven sets, Well, the following week, you might get more total reps over those seven sets, or you might get to that 45 reps faster if you use the reps model. And so you can say, all right, this first week, it took me seven sets to get to 45 reps. The next week, if I get there in six reps, then I'm going to increase the load that I'm using, right? And so it has that progressive overload built into it, and you can hit benchmarks to be able to progress with it. So what's the usage of this? When would you use it? Why would you use it? Well, it's a very, very time-efficient strategy. I have a a video that's out for free on the massresearchreview.com website that looks at time-efficient programming strategies. And I break down exactly kind of how much time this saves you uh, compared to traditional training when you do it. So if you're really short on time one day, you typically have an hour to train, hour and a half, but you got to go to school early. You got to go to work Uh, obviously Valentine's Day, you wouldn't be going home to your spouse. You'd be coming here. So time efficiency wouldn't be an issue on that day as we're finding out. But you might incorporate this to save some time. A way to utilize it, I probably wouldn't use it on your main lifts, uh, skilled movements like squat, bench press all the time, just because there's such a high fatigue component, uh, especially associated with metabolic fatigue. And so if you are performing you know, six, seven sets of squats all to failure with 20 seconds rest, the risk of a technique error becomes higher. So if you're short on time, I might do those squats or those bench presses normally. But then on the assistance movements, that's when I'd pack in some rest pause sets to probably go ahead and save some time. There's some sort of mystique a lot of times around these strategies. I don't think there's anything magical. The research doesn't tend to show on average there's a difference between traditional training and rest pause type training for strength or for muscle growth. Um, but it doesn't necessarily show that it's worth it. It's worse either. The way the literature tends to look at this though, is to compare a, a method or a training session of only rest pause training to only traditional training. And typically that's not how we would use it in practice. For the most part, we would perform some rest pause training for some movements in, in a training session and perform a traditional training first. You can utilize it for the whole session, but I probably wouldn't do it all the time. If you're doing it all the time, The other factor that comes into play are what I call the downstream effects, which could be, all right, I'm constantly performing all of these sets to failure with very, very short rest interval and I'm packing in a ton of volume, but what's that doing to my session RPE? How fatigued am I from that, uh, especially over the next few days? And so I think that might be difficult to sustain all of that and it might be difficult to train heavy enough consistently on some of the main lifts, especially if you're training for strength. That being said, and I know Trex and I shared this because we've mentioned it to each other before, which is that I do think another practical usage of this is it can help keep people engaged and keep them focused. I know sometimes my mind would wander when I train, maybe you sit down on the bench press, you start thinking about something, you get an email for work, you get something on your phone or whatever it might be. But if you only have 20 seconds to rest and you're doing this rest pause training, you don't really have that option. You're staying focused. So rest pause training, Using either the set or the rep model, performing some sets to failure or to a, an RIR very close to failure with short rest, uh, and doing that until you hit that specified number of reps—a time-efficient strategy used to accumulate volume. Now, if we go to myo reps, right, which is on the next page of our doc here, myo reps is very similar to rest pause. This came about some time ago, um, but. The difference I'd say between myo reps and rest pause is really twofold in that ultimately a lot of the sets are going to be of lower reps and it tends to be a much more rigid thing. Whereas rest pause training, you could utilize really any load. I said, pick a load for 20 RM, but you could pick a 10 RM load. You could pick a 15 RM load. You could pick a 30 RM load. It's just the concept. Myo reps on the other hand was developed as somebody developing, hey, do exactly this thing which is a essentially a rest pause strategy with more fixed repetition targets that you're going to utilize and so myo reps the first set is what has traditionally been called a quote activation set and this would be to choose a a moderate to lighter load about 20 to 30 rm maybe 15 to 20 RM, kind of the sweet spot, and doing a set as that activation set, not to failure, with one or two reps in reserve. Now, after that, you're gonna keep that same load for the entire time, the entire session, and, or the entire number of sets on that exercise. You, from there, you're gonna take maybe 20 seconds rest or three to five breaths, and then perform three to five reps with that same load should be maybe 0 to three, zero to 4 RAR, something like that. And you're going to keep doing that, taking that 20 seconds rest or 3 to 5 breaths, and then performing 3 to 5 reps with that same load. Now, you could alter this slightly, although it is more rigid. Instead of saying 3 to 5, you're going to do exactly 4. And the when you would stop in this case is when you can no longer maintain the number of reps that you're doing so you can no longer maintain that three reps or that four reps whatever you're doing and so once you drop below that then you go ahead and you stop what you're doing and so that's my reps very similar to rest pause training in that sense Um, but you have this a bit more rigid type of thing one thing i'll add on there is whether you go for the 20 seconds exactly or whether you go for the three to five breaths if you're going with the breaths I would really kind of almost drag them out right make sure you're really breathing slowly um, because you're going to need that time uh, it takes a lot of effort a lot of energy and this is a pretty difficult thing to do so ultimately the uses in practicality it might be targeted a little bit more at practicing the technique and strength because you're utilizing lower reps you can hold the technique a bit better on those you are getting a pretty good amount of volume in that short amount of time. Um, again, I'd probably use it in addition to traditional sets. If you're going to use it on something like a squat or a bench press, especially if you're training for strength, I might work up to like a heavy single first, um, like a single at a 90% of 1RM, get your strength adaptation for that day, work up something pretty heavy, and then go ahead and do that activation set and incorporate your mile reps after that. And I think that's something the literature kind of leaves out a lot in this, so We tend to look at these in isolation. We don't realize they can and probably should be integrated into a training session with other strategies. So to sum up those first two, Rest pause and Mayo Reps are very, very similar, except Mayo Reps um, has a bit more of a rigid structure in terms of doing exactly these number of reps. So a- as we move on here, Trex, uh, there's four more we're gonna get to. The next two are also connected. Rest, rest redistribution, and cluster sets, and this is what you alluded to in the intro. Um, so I've put those together. But I want to pause there for a moment. Now that we've covered the first two, and see if there's anything that I went over there that you think I should clear up, or you'd like me to elaborate on uh, for the folks out there.
0: No, I think um, I think you did a great job with that. In hindsight, you know, I talked last week about saying, "Oh, you know, I do some kind of redistribution of my rest." And while that is technically true. I think the way I train, uh, more closely fits the actual definition of drop set training when I'm kind of short on time or I'm kind of bored or not focused, whatever the case may be. So, um, clarifying that point, uh, and, and one other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking was, um, I started thinking like, when did this start in my life? Not to go on too big of a tangent, but when did I start struggling to focus and feeling like I needed to fill my rest periods with something more active? and I hate to sound like another grumpy old person, but these damn smartphones, Mike, I swear I did not used to be this way. You know, I I think back to when I was training, when I was, you know, 15 or 18 or 21 and I didn't have a smartphone yet. It was just me and the old iPod mini or iPod shuffle, whatever the case may be. Shuffle. And uh, man, it just wasn't a thing. Like I was completely engaged, locked in, but it's these damn phones. And now I'm like, whoa, I'm sitting down for two minutes straight. Like I should be checking email. I should be on Instagram. I should be doing this. So, uh, just me kind of shaking my fist at the clouds and saying, doggone it, this technology. But yeah, in terms of content, I think you nailed it, man.
1: Yeah. I appreciate it. And, and I agree with you in that when you're doing more of a, so rest pause almost turns into be more of a continuous exercise. Right. And when you do that, and it's very difficult to to look at your phone. Um, as you know, I've been for the last nearly four years, right? I've been doing a different style of training and I've been running. And when you're out there and you're you're training for a long run, you can't be looking at your phone the whole time, right? And nope. so that's one of the things I really, really like about it. You're actually out there in a way. So if you can simulate that in the gym when you're lifting in, in some capacity, Um, I do think that could have that indirect benefit you're describing. Uh, so you're not sitting there because part of the reason too, I think, isn't that folks just, you know, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, you know, people can't turn away from their phones, but I also think that, and you described this, people feel they need to be productive. So you, for example, have a lot going on. And since you have a lot going on, you feel like you need to check your email and you need to do all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know it's hard to get away from it when you're like oh i I've, I've, i know i got four emails i got to get back to them so any type of continuous exercise could help a bit to to get away from that so yeah i, I think it's uh, a good analogy that you bring up
0: because um you know sometimes i feel nervous about admitting this in front of people on the internet but i actually really subjectively would say i enjoy running more than i enjoy the practice of lifting weights you know sometimes not always but um, I, I can there, I go through phases where I much prefer running over lifting, and then I go through phases where the opposite is true. And uh, and yeah, I, I very much enjoy the continuous nature of running, and that's probably what got me. You know, when, when I'm really struggling to focus or feeling a little bit bored with my training, I think that's probably why I gravitate toward a more continuous setup, as is afforded by drop sets. Yeah, I think that. I'm makes sorry, rep pause, uh, rest pause sets. Here I am yeah. messing up the terms. When you're defining them so clearly,
1: yeah, drop sets are going to have a, a similar, when we get there, uh, ability, I think, to have that continuous exercise type of component and do some of that similar stuff. So, yeah. as we get back to it, the next two, as I said, that we have on the sheet here are rest redistribution and cluster sets. And I, uh, pun intended, clustered those together because, like rest pause and myo reps, they are very similar. So, We'll start with rest redistribution sets. This is a bit of a newer term in the literature and by newer, it's still been around for some years now, but certainly much newer than something like supersets, which we'll talk about at the end here. So when we look at rest redistribution sets, essentially what this is doing is it's taking a traditional prescription and it's redistributing the rest to have shorter interset rest intervals and more sets, but fewer reps in each set. So if you take, let's say 80% of 1RM, and I'll go over this specific example that's on the page in front of you in just a moment, and you're performing six reps, but now you go down to two reps per set at 80% of 1RM, well, hey, you're gonna have a lot more repetitions in reserve. So from set to set, the velocity or the power output that you can maintain should be much better, and you won't be fatiguing as much. Well for strength, perhaps there's an advantage of staying a bit shy of failure and maintaining that velocity. And certainly there probably is for explosivity, right, for power output. So that's really what rest redistribution sets are gained toward. So this, to be clear, is taking the same total time as traditional sets. But just as the name says, it's redistributing the rest to do that. So and the example that's in front of us here is traditional sets are three sets of six at 80% of 1RM, with three-minute rest intervals. And again, this is just a conceptual example. You could take another number of sets, another number of reps, another percentage, and another rest interval. But three by six at 80% of what rm I'm with three-minute rest as our example, we go to a rest redistribution model. That three by six becomes nine by two at 80%, and the rest intervals become 45 seconds. Now we're taking the same amount of time, so we ha- and we have shorter rests, so we're super engaged. But because we're only doing two reps on each set at 80%, our RIR is going to be much lower. Let's say for somebody, this is about a 8, 9, 10 RM. I might even argue 11 RM for some. But if we have this at a 10 RM, somebody only does two reps on the first set, they might fatigue a little bit because the rest is only 45 seconds, but they're going to be able to maintain that velocity from set to set. Another way to look at this as a potential advantage for strength is that let's say on the deadlift, for example, If somebody is doing nine sets instead of three, they're getting nine chances to set up to that barbell, nine chances to practice exactly how they're setting up on that deadlift, nine chances to practice how they're doing their squat walkout, right? So you could argue from a technique perspective in some cases that this could be beneficial. Now, to be clear, over time, The literature does not show a difference between traditional training and rest redistribution sets for strength adaptation. And that's going to be a theme for all of these is that the literature isn't showing for any of these training strategies a significant difference between traditional training and these programming strategies or advanced training techniques. I think that doing only these advanced training techniques all the time might be a little bit limited uh, for some reasons that I mentioned earlier related to some of the downstream effects. Although in this case, for rest redistribution training, it's possible that those downstream effects like session RP, session RP could be a bit lower because session RP is not only a product of volume, but is a product of proximity to failure. And rest redistribution should be a bit farther from failure. So that's primarily where it's used. Probably somebody interested in strength would use rest redistribution a bit more than somebody interested in hypertrophy, especially given the recent meta regression where going to failure may be... Uh, a, a, a bit better for hypertrophy in some cases. Uh, and if you're going to perhaps have that same hypertrophy by staying far from failure, which I think can happen, you probably need more volume. And rest redistribution is simply doing the same volume but redistributing it. But it takes the same time as traditional training. So as we scroll down to cluster sets, cluster sets are gonna sound almost eerily similar in some ways to um, the rest redistribution sets. But there's going to be a key difference here where cluster sets are really the only strategy on here that uh, are, is not time efficient. Cluster sets are actually going to take a bit more time. So rest redistribution sets, okay, performed you know, two reps, took some rest, and then performed two more reps. But cluster sets are doing two different rest intervals. And I'll explain this in a moment. They're resting after one or two reps and then resting after the end of the entire set. So the purpose of cluster sets is really was created, not created, but it's really been utilized in the research a lot for team sport athletes and looking at explosivity, you know, soccer players, hockey players, football players, things like this, to be able to to maintain velocity from rep to rep and maintain power output from rep to rep much better. And so Let's say we have three sets of 10 if we go to our example here so the example on the sheet three by 10 at 70 percent of water m with two minute rest intervals so you can go ahead and do that but if you're interested in power output well over the course of those 10 reps that interest set fatigue is going to be pretty high and with cluster sets the way somebody would do this is let's take that one set of 10. now in that one set of 10 somebody performs one or two reps, then they take 20 seconds rest. Then they perform one or two more reps and takes 20 seconds rest. So to give the specific example, let's say they're doing two reps at a time. Two reps, 20 seconds rest, two reps, 20 seconds rest, two reps, all the way until they hit 10 reps. That is then one set of 10. Then after they complete those 10 reps, they take the normal interset rest of two minutes then they go into the second set where they do two reps, 20 seconds rest, two reps, 20 seconds rest, and so forth. And they do that for those three sets or however many sets are programmed. Again, we're all this is all conceptual. Now, that should maintain or most certainly will maintain velocity and power output from rep to rep much better than if they did all 10 of those reps consecutively in that set. But the issue here is this just isn't very time efficient. So, if you are a power lifter, a bodybuilder, general trainee looking for strength adaptation, whatever you're looking at doing, you could train this way for sure. But if you had a lot of assistance movements to perform after your squat or bench press where you did lift, did this, you'd probably be in the gym for quite some time. Rest redistribution, on the other hand, is probably the better way to go for that individual. Whereas cluster sets really to maximize power output, let's say for a team sport athlete that needs to go ahead and do that now Uh, mike before
0: are you done with uh cluster sets were you about to move on i was what what do you have for me i had a question that might be kind of related here uh from the live chat kim asked uh people can extend their squat um am you know their kind of max rep sets uh by taking more time between reps is there a literature standard for squat tempo um or a general best practice you know so if you're doing a top set where you're saying hey take this weight do as many reps as you can obviously you can kind of cheat that in a way i don't know if that's the correct term but almost by utilizing something similar to what we're talking about here where instead of just you know banging out 13 reps in a row in a steady cadence you know you maybe you start taking a few breaths between your repetition so is there kind of a a, a standard or or a a heuristic or guideline that you would advocate to make sure that your amrap testing is actually fairly repeatable
1: in nature so to to me so i'm reading this here and and uh i just want to make sure i'm getting the, the question correctly so i see really two things here people can extend their squat amraps by taking more time between reps which is absolutely the case right um and then is there literature on standard squat tempo for one rep max test and so by squat tempo and maybe kim can clarify uh are we referring to there in terms of let's say the cadence um the the eccentric duration um you know that's going to precede the concentric in that case because uh, we're talking about a a, a rep, rep max test um in and by my,
0: my read of the question is that she was likely referring to just that you know the When you do the tempo you talk about okay the tempo of the eccentric the concentric and then that
1: rest between
0: repetitions i I think that's what she's referring to
1: so in terms of terms of that this is uh kind of something i've talked about going back some years now so if we're on that amrap set to paint everybody a picture here i think we've all been there where you know we have uh you know five sets of five at whatever and then on the last set all right, it's it's go time, right? Turn up that music a little louder and uh and we get after it. And let's say you're doing something really high rep even. You know, you you you're at rep 8, you think you got two more, you go to 10, and then what happens? And anybody that's uh kind of kind of listening uh uh later on especially is is probably going to laugh. Uh but then what happens? You take a couple breaths, right? You go And then you do another rep. And then maybe the next time after that rep, you take like five, six more breaths. And then maybe you hold that breath and you do two consecutive reps. And you're like, I don't think I can do another one. Then you stand there for 10 seconds with the barbell on your back. You take another another breath and you do another rep, right? And, and this is where it's really difficult to know when absolute failure is coming. Got it, Kim, thanks for the clarification. It's difficult to know when absolute failure is coming because there's so many aspects of fatigue that are in play, right? You have the neuromuscular fatigue here. You have metabolic fatigue. Um, you have the, the all of the intraset fatigue, right? So this is why it's so difficult to gauge something like repetitions in reserve um, when you get uh, so much higher in, in terms of the number of reps. So is there an exact amount of time between each rep? I, I wouldn't say there is on an AMRAP set an exact amount of time. I would say, let's say on a normal set of squat, if I'm looking for the exact amount of time, it's enough time to finish the repetition, let your breath out, take another one, and then get tight and go back into the squat. Stand up, let your breath out, take another one and go back into the squat. Something like on the deadlift, you're now starting this is a little bit different but you're now starting with the concentric portion of the lift meaning it's not preceded by an eccentric portion of the lift so you're not getting the benefit of the stretch shortening cycle well if you do a really hard first rep and then on the second rep of the deadlift you bounce the weight off the floor or you just let it stop for a half a second and pick it up you're going to get the benefit of the stretch shortening cycle so on a deadlift the stretch shortening cycle benefits tend to dissipate after about four seconds, right? So ideally on that, you could argue that you might want to take about four seconds when training for a pure benefit of a one RM of the transfer to the one RM. And so that's a little bit of a different question, but in terms of a rep max test, you know, it's hard because it depends on what you're, you're trying to accomplish there. If you're sorry, all out, I'm going to go crazy. And, and if you're taking, standing with the barbell on your back for 15 seconds, is that is to get another rep, is that repeatable? Or are you going to be able to do that same number of reps next time? Probably not. But is it still kind of awesome? Yeah, it's pretty cool um, to be able to fight through that and, and push through all of that. So I don't know if I have um, kind of an exact time between reps in terms of that AM rep set going to failure. Like If you're going to failure and you're just looking to crush it, then do whatever you need to, to, to crush it. Uh, But if you're just on a normal set of squat bench press enough time to let that breath out, tighten up again. If it's the bench press, make sure you're, you're pulling that bar apart again. You know, um, you're, you're kind of, uh, uh, putting that pressure on your pinkies a little bit, whatever the strategy is you use, you break the bar, take that breath again, bring it down, push it back up, get set again. So you can do that. And that's probably what I'd wait each time. Um, But if it's just an all-out set to failure, um, you know, go for it. Do what you need to do. So I I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great answer.
0: Are we ready to move on from cluster sets to what's our next one here? Supersets.
1: So supersets, yeah. Supersets are something that I think over the last decade, and certainly since I started writing for Mass back in 2017, there's been some important studies on And we've covered these in mass uh, a little bit, uh, both Dr. Helms and I. And the reason uh, you're most welcome, Kim, the reason that I think these are important is because I think there's a really, really useful strategy here. And to to get to this strategy, I want to outline first and foremost that there are three different types of supersets that I want to outline. Now, a superset is just doing two exercises back to back without taking any rest between the exercises. So, for example, doing a squat, then doing a bench press with no rest between, and then going ahead and taking that rest. This obviously is very time efficient because you're not you're you're minimizing the rest that you have. Uh, you're only resting after both of those exercises but there are ways that we can utilize supersets that are a bit smarter than other ways. So those three ways to utilize supersets is one, the agonist agonist superset, which is doing the same muscle group for each exercise. Now textbooks will often refer to these as compound sets, but I think they're more commonly called supersets. So I'll just utilize that term here. And so this is the same muscle group. So you're doing dumbbell flies and dumbbell bench press. It's the same muscle group Obviously, performance is going to be impaired on the second exercise. So you have three sets of 10. You do a set of 10 on dumbbell flies, no rest. You immediately do a set of 10 on dumbbell bench press. Then you take your one, two minutes rest. Then you do that superset again. Then you have the agonist peripheral superset. This is the one I already mentioned, which is, let's say, the bench press squat. These aren't agonist agonist muscles, and they're not agonist antagonist. They're not really related, but there could be some more peripheral fatigue if you're doing a bench press or a squat um, that kind of bleeds into the other one, especially with compound exercises like that. So when you look in the literature over the course of multiple sets, the velocity, let's say, from set to set on each exercise doesn't, doesn't decrease too much. It's not as these types of supersets don't fatigue the other exercises nearly as much as the agonist agonist but it's probably not the best option. That being said, just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it's unusable. Essentially, if somebody is very limited in the number of days they can train, let's say somebody is really interested in performing high frequency three times per week or even two times per week on the main power lifts, squat, the bench press, and the deadlift, but they can only train three times per week. Well, you might need to utilize some supersets here if you only have an hour to train three times per week on these main lifts and so the way to do that though is if you're training monday wednesday friday you don't have to say hey i'm going to train squats heavy monday and bench presses heavy monday you could train for power on squats on monday and you could train hypertrophy bench presses on Monday. And you could superset those because the squats are a bit lighter and they're not going to be too affected by the bench press. So you could be a bit smarter in the way that you're going about that agonist peripheral superset. If you're trying to do, you know, um, six sets of three at 90% of one M on squat and bench press and superset those, you're going to have some fatigue and it's probably just not going to work too well. But if you're going to utilize something like you know, some singles at 80% of one arm on squat and then some heavier bench press or some hypertrophy bench press, you could probably superset those in the agonist peripheral without too much of an issue. But the champ of supersets is really the agonist antagonist superset. Now that's when you're utilizing, uh, performing one exercise and then the exercise that's supersetted with trains the antagonist muscle group. So the most common iteration of this in the literature is a row bench press superset. Now, this actually has been shown across all of the studies that I'm aware of to not only not impair performance on, the, uh, on both of the exercises, but in I believe two cases I can think of actually improve performance compared to a baseline of not supersetting them. So essentially, if you're doing rows and then bench press, the number of reps on, this, on the seated row, which was in the study to failure, seem to be increased compared to not utilizing the bench press afterwards and so this makes a little bit of sense because let's say in a traditional set you're doing something like three sets to failure using whatever load on a rope, and you take two minutes rest after that but let's say you do supersets and you do three sets to failure and then you superset that with uh, you know you do a set of a row then a set of bench press then you take three minutes rest you're actually getting longer rest in the superset because you're doing the bench press after the row and then taking the rest. But you're saving time in the total session. So it makes a little bit of sense that because of that longer rest, you might actually improve performance on that. Not all studies show that. One study also did show that in a lake curl, lake extension superset. But nonetheless, the agonist antagonist superset is a really good time efficient strategy. Excellent way to go. Could save a lot of time on those... Um, exercises that are performed after if you're short on time one day, say, hey, I want to tain- maintain my strength levels and get a lot of hypertrophy. A great way to do this. Work into the gym, work up to a heavyish single on one of your main lifts, maybe do one more set, then back off of that and find a bunch of exercises that you can utilize, agonist, antagonist supersets, pack in that volume, and then you should be good to go and you won't impair performance. This is one of the the one strategy on here, programming strategy that I would say is more of an all the time thing. Something that you can use much more consistently than some of these others. So to me, that's really the champ of the ones that, that are on here. And I'm the all big right. fan, by the way, I love doing supersets
0: big time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is similar to the others, right? They keep you engaged. Um, you know you're 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 going. You don't have a lot of time to sit there and play on your phone or do whatever it is that you might do. And you're going to get, you're not getting any performance impairment, you know, if if you just like you know, and and we kind of in this day and age in the evidence-based business community, we're talking about kind of all these strategies and the strategies and these outcomes, which is what we should be doing. But at the same time, you're going to get a nice pump. It's going to be fun. It's going to feel great. And we can't ever forget that part of it, because if we're here talking about this, that's probably why we got into this in the first place. And it gives you a sense that you're really working hard and putting the work. And so I'm with you, man. To me, that is is one of the champ of these programming strategies. And uh, I always love to utilize them as well. All right. So we do our final one here. Yeah, our final one is drop sets. And for drop sets, this is another one that, uh, as I might say about uh, somebody famous, like if you were introducing the world's best brake pad salesman, uh, you would say a man that needs no introduction. And then Tommy Callahan would come walking out. If I wanna say uh, um, you know, a training strategy that needs no introduction, I think it would probably be drop sets. because so I think we all know about this, right? This is what we would call maybe running the rack on dumbbell curls, right? So you're performing sets with no rest and decreasing the load on each successive set. So the two examples that I have on here is that you could utilize drop sets as terms of an add-on tr- to traditional sets. Uh, which is not really what the literature does, but what I think is done a lot in practice. And it's how I started introducing myself to them many years ago, which is you might perform three sets of 15 on an exercise. Let's say dumbbell curls, as I have on our example. And then without any rest after that, you might drop those 20 kilogram dumbbells to 15, do a set to failure, drop uh, two and a half more kilos, do another set to failure, two and a half more kilos, another set to failure. So, you're kind of like a finisher finishing up a workout. You do this and you're good to go. You could do it on a main exercise. I wouldn't do it too much, but if you did, I would do traditional sets of squats and then maybe drop the load quite a bit and do one drop set. But the literature tends to use it as a standalone strategy, which is instead of doing those traditional sets, you're just going to start with those 20 kilo dumbbells or maybe a bit higher, and you're going to do them to failure. Drop two and a half five kilos, doomed to failure. Two and a half five kilos, doomed to failure. And you keep doing that until you get four, five, six, seven sets, whatever it might be, uh, and then you move on. And similar to rest pause, it's super time efficient, and you'll you'll kind of get everything done that you need to for those assistance movements. Again, I wouldn't do this on the main lifts due to the skill component, potential breakdown of uh, technique, possibly opening yourself up to injury risk on some of those skilled movements. So I'd use it more on the assistance exercises. And then to kind of take everything uh, full circle back to the front here, we talked about the difference between programming and that overarching model of periodization. We said that periodization dictates your programming. Drop sets is a good example of this. Again, that individual interested in strength is probably going to perform drop sets earlier on in that macro cycle when volume is higher. They're not going to perform drop sets in that last week where they're, you know, they don't really want to accumulate that intraset fatigue just before they're going to go ahead and test strength. So That's kind of an overview of everything that was a lot there uh, for this episode of Office Hours, but I hope it was beneficial. Uh, I hope it helped to clarify any questions on kind of the intermingling or, or of these definitions from one going into the next. And lastly, I leave you with on this, I always urge everybody to understand these things conceptually and for the most part, other than maybe some of it on mile reps, not taking any of these numbers and saying, I have to do exactly this understanding what are drop sets trying to accomplish? What are supersets trying to accomplish? And if you understand that, you can probably find an iteration of it that's better for you than what I can explain because you know the time constraints you have, you know what's in your training program, you know how much volume you can handle. And so hopefully that's beneficial for us.
0: Yeah, I thought that was great. And I can honestly say that in a typical workout right now, when I go into the gym, um, on a regular basis, basically every workout, I am doing uh, rest-pause sets. I am doing supersets, and I'm doing drop sets. So these are strategies that aren't just kind of these random little wacky training techniques that you see in the literature, you know, just some random study here or there. I mean, these are very practical, very useful training strategies, and those three for me are, are absolutely staples in my training. I, I really do love them. So I'm glad that you covered those, and hopefully people that are listening will get some ideas about how they will maybe incorporate some of this stuff maybe they've never thought about training that way and they say oh interesting i'll try that or maybe they've been training that way and they didn't know there was actually a name for it or any research behind it um and on that note i just had one follow-up question um would you say that you know as you're going through the literature on these various techniques these six techniques that you reviewed here would you say that a lot of this research has been done since 2010 or before 2010
1: I'd say a lot of it on rest redistribution and cluster sets um, has been done since, since 2010. Uh, on drop sets, there was some stuff that came out before then, but I'd say more, Godot came out 2005, I believe, but more of it since then. Rest redistribution and cluster sets certainly more recent. Prestes rest pause was 2013. Um, There's another rest pause with a little bit of a different definition. That was around 2007. No, Prestes was 2017. It's about then so I'd say I'd say since um, overwhelmingly since I can think of a few you know what's funny there's always a few things you can think of that came out years ago or you're looking at a topic and you've never seen a paper all of a sudden it pops up with like 1991 and you're like how come nobody else investigated this until 2012 yeah um, so I would say just thinking here about all these strategies and then the supersets there's three or four papers in math we reviewed, and those are all recently. So I'd say overwhelmingly since 2010.
0: Yeah, the reason I asked was because I remember um, when I was thinking about college degrees uh, for undergrad. So this would have been about 2008. Um, I was going at, you know, to different campuses and talking about different programs, and there was this one that had this honors program that was really cool. They kind of cop- copied off um, some model of, I, I think it was Oxford over in the U.K., but basically, their honors program, you could basically set up your own curriculum with some very basic guardrails. And so you can make this cool multidisciplinary degree for yourself. And there is a big research emphasis. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go here and I'm going to study all these things that I read about in, in the bodybuilding magazines that no one's bothered to study. Um, and, you know, and what do I know? I'm a junior in high school. It's not like I have, like, uh, you know, a firm grasp on what's out there in PubMed. Um, but, but I do... St- you know, really get the sense that there, there was around that time in that 2008 to 2012 kind of time window was a real shift in the literature where, where we started to see more of these things, more of these like practical in the trenches type strategies, getting studied, uh, in a meaningful way with a decent level of frequency, um, which is, which is pretty cool. And some of them still haven't been studied that much yet, but it's kind of like when we started to see these popping up and, my personal research didn't actually end up going in that direction, but I'm glad somebody was doing it because I, it seemed like it's about time to put these things to the test.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that I individually, really only me, changed the game of actually science research because 2008, when you mentioned, is the year I started mm. doing research. So yeah. um, obviously that's exactly what you meant. And I, I appreciate it. That's high praise. I wasn't going to go that far, but I appreciate you saying it.
0: Yeah, when I think of the literature I think of the pre-Zordo's era and the post-Zordo's or or the the current era with Zordo's. I don't want to I don't say post-Zordo's so that kind of implies that you're washed up has been basically out of the game.
1: I mean my students are uh much better than I am at this point so uh we can let them take over.
0: Yeah. Okay, so post-Zordo's, he's done. That's, that's fine with me. He's All right. he's, he's, he's washed Exactly. So, okay. Uh, first of all, the hashtags are exploding in the chat. Trextopia, Zordopamine. Those are the classics. Daniel says hi from San Francisco. Hey, back at you. Um, never been, but my wife has been. She says nice things. Hope you're doing well out there. Uh, Trextron is a hashtag. Uh, fighting Zordsman, That's that's pretty good. Um, minimum effective Zordos. Another good one. You know, it's really interesting trexed pause sets I don't I think that one's a stretch but progressive zordo zordo load i'm I'm helping them out there with a little edit basically the, the problem is last week we found out you and I have names that lend themselves to a variety of creative hashtags lauren's got nothing uh her hashtags are really falling behind and I hate to call her out when she's not here to defend herself but it there's a growing discrepancy a big gap
1: I, I'm gonna spend uh, I, I'm hoping you take the next question because I'm gonna have to spend that time thinking, I was listening to your episode with Lauren, I wasn't able to watch live, but I was listening to it while I was on a run. And I came up with a hashtag for her, and it was good. But now it's escaping me, so you're gonna talk about something, I don't yeah. know, probably related to nutrition, something I'm not interested in, and I'm gonna spend that time running that back. Okay, well actually, I want, let's put a pin in that, okay? Because okay. I did wanna
0: run a couple questions by you, obviously. One of our top priorities with office hours is to uh, show some love to the live chat. Um, okay, a couple hashtags coming in. Simple sisters and simple joys in life. They're not necessarily lifting related, but but those count for sure. Um, okay, so there were a few questions that came up that were very training focused. And frankly, I think you can answer them uh, considerably better than I can. Um, so one of the ones here... Uh, where to go? Okay, yeah. Any thoughts on systemic fatigue? Uh, a lot of folks lately have been saying how CNS fatigue or central nervous cent- central nervous system fatigue isn't really a big deal, um, but folks really never elaborate on you know what this is, what's driving it, and ultimately is is central nervous system fatigue something that we should really be thinking about with regards to our programming?
1: So, this is a big question, and I. I- I'm gonna keep the question up here so I can make sure I have it. And
0: free. please feel free to give you know very concise, brief answers. We just want to make sure that we kind of go through the chat here and, and uh, address people's questions. I don't expect you to do another 45 minute deep dive or anything like that.
1: I was all, I was I was gonna go 46. I had a timer yeah. on it and I thought I could beat it. Um, so for this question, so I love that um, it says in this question. It, but it never really elaborates on what is actually driving systemic fatigue. Meaning, the way I'm interpreting this is, you know, a lot of people for years. I remember when I first got into lifting. I ah, you can't do this. You can only you can't lift heavy for more than three weeks in a row. Then you need to deload, and that's because of CNS fatigue. And I'd I'd always this is one of those things where I feel like people were never ready for a follow up question. <laughs> I'd say, well, what does that mean? I, you know, CNS fatigue, you know, you can't, you just can't handle it. You need a deal Don't worry about it. And I was never explained clearly. I wrote about this in the first volume of mass volume one, uh, issue four or five, something like that so back in like and, 2017, right? Yeah. You remember that article? Uh, and no, that's... but I remember
0: how volumes and years work.
1: You, you could have said, yeah, of course yeah.
0: I read mass back then. I read, I read it at the beginning of the month, every month, just to kind of bring it back up to top of mind.
1: Yeah, 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 it could have made me feel good. Um, and so it was comparing central fatigue between the squat and the deadlift. And the the on the deadlift, it was always said the deadlift causes the most CNS fatigue, right? But there's never really any evidence to show this. And what central fatigue is really measuring is cortical impulses. Um, now it's pretty difficult to measure this uh, in the literature, especially with the non-invasive tools we have and the EMG and so forth. Um, But they found that cortical impulses that were going here to the muscle, measuring them indirectly, weren't different between those lifts, and that any fatigue tended to come back to baseline pretty quickly. Now, that doesn't mean that central fatigue can't exist, um, and it probably does exist to an extent, because this was only looking at it kind of acutely. So it doesn't mean it doesn't manifest or, or kind of go away from baseline over the rest of the week. But... For a normal training session, those cortical impulses and that fatigue doesn't seem to be different between those. Now, in terms of, let's say, what's driving systemic fatigue here, this is a very big answer. And I think part of the question is, does fatigue accumulate, right? Is there a cumulative effect? I think it's difficult to say. There's a paper that came out some years ago questioning this, maybe four or five years ago now. And I'm not sure right? If it does, it it can in the sense that like, if you're always training in an under-recovered state, right? You may go from overreaching and then eventually to overtraining, you're in a caloric deficit and it's difficult to recover. And now sure, you have some systemic fatigue, but is there a cumulative fatigue effect where, okay, I train, I take 48 hours off, I train again, I train really, really hard. I'm not fully recovered, but I'm recovered enough to train, which I think is an important question, right? People, I wouldn't worry about full recovery all the time, just being ready to go. Does that fatigue accumulate? I'm not sure. So the short answer on CNS fatigue is that's cortical impulses, we don't have a lot of evidence in terms of a typical training session to say that accumulates over time. So it's very difficult to answer that. But fatigue is very multifaceted. The basic definition of fatigue is any drop in motor output. Is that cumulative? Can that occur because of neuromuscular, because of metabolic, because of CNS? All of those factors play into it.
0: Yeah. I I think you did a, a great job there kind of summarizing the uh, the uncertainty in, in that uh, topic and more and more I'm becoming skeptical of, I'm not saying that central fatigue uh, or central nervous system fatigue cannot accumulate uh, with regards to lifting, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that if it can, it is probably quite atypical, You know, probably quite rare, I would say. And I think in a lot of cases, the folks who talk about having a high load of kind of central nervous system fatigue accumulating over time. Um, I I do wonder how much of that is, um, perhaps more staleness, kind of psychological staleness of just like, I am tired because I've been doing acutely a lot of work. Right. Um, and basically I'm, I'm not feeling it. I don't really want to get back into the gym right now and and do this, this long training session. So I, I think it's not to say it's like completely in their head, but I think there's kind of a mixture of. Uh, more acute indices of fatigue mixed with staleness, mixed with, you know, perhaps, you know, sleep is getting disrupted a little bit because of the acute workload. I don't know. I think there's a a convergence of factors there. But in terms of the, the kind of narrative that used to predominate, which was that, you know, there's some like level of central nervous system battery that just drains over the course of a mesocycle and gets to zero. And then you need to recharge with a deload. I think that that's getting harder and harder to defend as as more evidence comes out. But that's not to say deloads have no place, um, but but I, I do think it uh, raises uh, a lot of useful questions about when, where, and why to use deloads. And over the years, I've found that I still use deloads regularly, but I use them in very different ways than I used to. Um, all right, so... Sploder, first of all, has just been showering me with praise in the comments. So, of course, I appreciate that and want to acknowledge that. Also, Sploder had a question. Um, There is a paper called the anabolic response to protein ingestion during recovery from exercise has no upper limit in magnitude and duration in vivo in humans. Um, So, basically, talking about this question indicating that a human can use up to 100 grams of protein per meal. Uh, with regards to, and we say can use it, we mean to actually meaningfully facilitate muscle growth and anabolic processes. Uh, In this case, muscle protein synthesis. So uh, I actually covered that study in depth. I gave it a full length review uh, within the pages of the Mass Research Review. So if you're a Mass subscriber, you already know my thoughts on it. Um, I'm not gonna elaborate on the entire article there, but my short kind of cliff note summary is I think this study uh, is an important study, I think it was done quite well, and I think it highlights uh, something that I've kind of been alluding to for a while now within MASS, which is that some of the early perspectives on protein dose and distribution and timing throughout the day were, um, you know, they, they were a little bit narrow in scope. You know, they would say, oh, well, you can maximize protein synthesis with only 20 grams if you're a young, healthy individual and due to the refractory period, you can probably only do this three, maybe four times a day. And so you kind of start putting together these isolated findings about refractory periods and maximal anabolic doses, and you get to a, a spot where you say, well, wait a minute. If, if we think all that stuff is true, then theoretically you could argue, you know, a IFBB pro bodybuilder with, you know, 200 pounds of lean mass can maximize the anabolic response of protein by having Eighty, maybe 100 grams of protein per day, you start to run into these scenarios where you say, I, that doesn't seem right and it doesn't really uh, align well with the kind of literature looking at more chronic adaptations, right? So when someone only eats 80 grams of protein per day, what kind of gains do we expect from them? N- not really all that great relative to someone who's having double that, right? And of course, the, the benefit of going higher and higher with protein plateaus in my opinion, a lot lower than most people often say, uh, or at least it starts to plateau a little bit lower than most people say. Uh, but all of this is to say, I think the new study um, helps us fill in gaps uh, about this this massive uh, disconnect between the acute muscle protein synthesis studies and the longer term studies that actually measure hypertrophy. All of that is to say. I think uh, you probably can make very good use of very large protein boluses, even up in the ballpark of 100 grams per, per meal. And I think if you wanted to maximize the muscle building benefits of protein, you can probably maximize that response, You know, maximize your benefit in terms of strategic timing distribution by probably only having maybe three meals per day. I, I think, you know, getting enough total protein is the highest priority if you split that among six or five or four or three meals per day. I think you're probably going to end up basically in the same place. I think you can argue that three is really only marginally better than two meals per day. Again, assuming that you're meeting your, your total daily protein goal. Um, and then I think there's a, a much more robust uh, base of evidence to suggest that two or three is better than one meal per day. Now, I'll acknowledge right now, I'm only eating one meal per day. I expect to be making fantastic progress with that. The question is, is it optimal progress? Probably not. So that that's my take on the new study in short, but like I said, the long version is within the beautiful pages of the Mass Research Review, massresearchreview.com, you know the drill. Um, let's see here. Uh, Zordos, there was a question that I really wanted to get to about uh, pre-exhaustion. Uh, yeah, so would squatting... A lighter than normal load after pre-exhausting my quads with leg extensions provides similar hypertrophy stimulus compared to just doing uh, normal squats with my normal load. Um, I I can take a crack at this and let, let you correct me. So, if we're talking about maximizing your squat strength, I would say this approach is suboptimal, most likely. If we're talking about maximizing hypertrophy, which is in the question, um... I I think that you would do just as well with this approach, in my opinion, and perhaps you could argue maybe slightly better, um, not because of, you know, uh, I'll just get right to the point. I think you might argue that you could do slightly better if this was all the leg training you were doing, which is probably not, but you, you could make the argument that doing a combination of leg extensions and squats will probably give you more well-rounded hypertrophy of the quads when we're talking about the different individual elements of the quad muscle group. Um, But assuming that you have a well-rounded lower body training program and we're just specifically talking about this head-to-head comparison for hypertrophy, I don't think you're going to find much of a difference at all. Uh, For strength, I think it would be disadvantageous for specifically squat strength. Uh, Zordos, correct me. Let me know what I got wrong there.
1: Well, one of the great pleasures I have in life is being able to correct you. Uh, unfortunately, you did a pretty good job here. Hmm. So I'm not able to lay down the hammer and inform you that you made a drastic error. And so as Trek said here, I fully agree that for for exercise order, right, which is really how Al framed this, exercise order matters for strength in the sense that if you, and this question was specific to hypertrophy, so I'll, I'll get to that but exercise order matters for strength and that strength is specific. So if you want to get better at something, you should do that thing first. So for example, if you did want to increase your squat 1RM, well, if you're always squatting after leg pressing, obviously you're going to be fatigued. The training variable that's most closely related to increases in strength is going to be the load on that barbell, the percentage of 1RM that you're utilizing. And so you're not going to be able to lift as heavy if you do that second in a session. If you're looking at a neutral strength, so let's say you're training upper body and the test in the research study is hand grip strength, neutral strength, it doesn't seem to matter if you do the dumbbell bench press before the bench press or the shoulder press before the bench press. So strength is specific. So even if you wanted to maximize your strength on a shoulder press as opposed to a bench press, then you should do that first in the session. So exercise order matters for specific strength. But In terms of the literature, that's about all it matters for. So in 2021, there was a meta-analysis from Nunez, and I covered this in mass, and I have a couple exercise order videos in the mass research review, part one on strength, part two on hypertrophy. And for hypertrophy, if you look at the effects in the Nunez meta-analysis from two years ago, in terms of the forest plot, they are almost all right on that zero difference line. Uh, So meaning that if you're performing multi-joint exercises or single joint exercises first, or this exercise or that exercise, muscle growth tends to be similar. So the exercise order, as Trex said, really doesn't seem to affect muscle growth. There could be special cases, again, as he alluded to, if you're only utilizing two specific exercises, then the order could matter, but that's probably not the case. Assuming the rest of your training program is well-rounded and you're incorporating everything in, you like to perform squats first, but you get to the gym, and your your main goal is muscle growth, and and the uh, squat racks are occupied. They're probably not squatting, but nonetheless, the squat racks are occupied. And you got to do the leg press first, the leg extension first. Don't worry about it. No reason to you know angrily throw your protein uh, uh, tub on the floor. You're good to go. Go ahead and do that leg extension first, and then go to the squat rack. So the bottom line is, for specific strength exercise order matters. Really, for anything else. It probably doesn't. You can make nuanced arguments here or there. Oh, I think we could do this a little bit or so forth. It probably doesn't matter. And to the original question of doing the lighter squats after, are you getting uh, kind of the same hypertrophy? Well, if let's say, it, and here's where the indirect way it could matter. If you're doing all of your, your leg press, your leg extensions, whatever is done first in that example, and then you're so fatigued after that, that when you get to the squats, you just don't feel like doing them and you often cut the volume short, then it could matter. Not because actually doing leg extensions before squats impairs your muscle growth, but because squats take all of that effort. They're more of a compound movement. You got to put the barbell on your back. They're a bit more systemically fatiguing and you just can't muster up the energy to do all of the volume that you would do. And if you're training with a, a, you know, a much lower load, maybe you have to do more reps now, you're a bit more fatigued. So I think those practical considerations should always be taken into account, which is, hey, if I am I move squats from first to seventh in my order, I'm probably just going to have a lot less effort I can put into them at that point. Whereas if you're doing, you know, leg curls at that point in the training session, you're still going to be able to knock them out. So physiologically, no, practically, it could matter for those reasons. Good stuff. All right, Mike. This is
0: uh, crunch time here. Rapid fire, going through the list, making sure that we are giving our cherished live viewers uh, the attention they deserve. So I'm going to go through uh, some of these. I'm just going to take them myself. Some of them, I'm going to kick them to you. So question, how do we assess if a certain training program is working for hypertrophy given how slow changes in muscle size can be? Uh, I wish I had a quick, easy answer for you. It's tough. It, you know, It really is tough, I think. The the best approach, in my opinion, is to choose um, at least a couple ways to monitor that that work for you. Um, none of them are going to be perfect, but they all give you some kind of information that can be useful. You can measure circumferences with a tape measure. You can focus on how your clothing is fitting. You can focus on your visual appearance in the mirror. Uh, you can also, as a very rough proxy, focus on your ability to continue maintaining progressive overload. Right. So if you're doing if you're adding meaningful weight to the number to the uh you know 10 rep max for you know all of your kind of incline bench and bicep curl and tricep extension if you're progressing on your 8 10 12 rep maxes uh in those various lifts it's not uh, a perfect correlate or a perfect predictor of hypertrophy but it should be you know in totality those multiple sources of information should help you figure out broadly speaking if you're making uh, progress in the right direction. Um, we've got another one here. This one, I think um, I'll, I'll throw my two cents in and then see what you think, Mike, we could very well disagree on this. Um, so Wes asked, what is the minimum effective dose of weekly sets per muscle group for hypertrophy in well-trained individuals? Um, and, and so Wes, uh, in other questions had kind of asked, like, you know, is there any research you've looked at? I'll be totally honest. I haven't looked at a recent view of this in the literature um, based on previous meta-analyses and, you know, a little bit of experience and a bit of a hunch, to be totally honest. I would say when I'm trying to kind of make sure I'm doing my best for promoting hypertrophy rather than maintaining gains that have already occurred, which I would view very differently, I try to get at least 10 sets a week uh, for a given muscle group could you still make hypertrophy with half of that? Probably. So I think the question is, you know, the minimum effective dose kind of depends on, you know, are you, are you really looking at hypertrophy as just any positive growth or like a substantive degree of growth, right? Because for an untrained person, walking can sometimes be a hypertrophy stimulus, right? Depending on how untrained they are. For a well-trained person, I think at least five sets a week is going to be your bare minimum for inducing hypertrophy. Would be my guess. I'd probably err more on the side of of ten sets if I'm hoping to, you know, create some a substantial uh, stimulus for hypertrophy for someone who is quite well trained. Mike, what do you think?
1: Yeah, this is really difficult to answer and put a number on. And in, in the literature, there has been some talk around four or five sets per week, um, but you know, we have to consider what. What Trek said, we're not talking about, at least the question as I'm understanding it, isn't talking about maintaining muscle size. It's talking about actual hypertrophy, which means to increase. And so at a certain point, I just don't think that that person's going to continue to, let's say, increase. Um, strength is a different story because you could theoretically max out every single day and you without doing volume. And I could make an argument that you would continue to adapt to that over time and get stronger. I'm not saying definitively or so forth. But hypertrophy is a bit different in that I, I, I don't think it's the other question of it, which is for how long, right? So it could somebody that's pretty well trained um, perform, let's say four or five exercises, or four or five sets per week and gain muscle for a little bit. Potentially, yes. Um, but one of the caveats to that is knowing what we know now, and, and I probably wouldn't have said this uh, a year or two ago, two years ago, is I probably take those sets to failure. Uh, I think that's going to matter as well, especially if you're not too worried about recovery and it's a more minimal dose. Um, you're going to want to use all of the tools in the toolbox there. And then how long are they going to be able to gain that hypertrophy? So that minimal dose probably shifts over time. Uh, that might become then the maintenance dose and, and how it can change. So sure, but I, I think it's going to be more of a moving target where for, for strength, I think I'd give a little bit of a different answer.
0: Yeah. All right, next one. Uh, what is one lesser known or different piece of equipment you suggest people try out for fun? Examples would be landmine exercises or doing barbell exercises with an axle bar. Um, I'm actually this is a bit of a cop out, but I actually am going to use one of the examples. I think landmine exercises are are really underrated. Um, I think landmine exercises are a very fun way to mix things up in the gym and. Um, When I work with clients, um, I used to work with a lot of clients who trained out of a home gym, and they frankly did not have a ton of equipment to work with, Um, and we could really do some interesting things by utilizing a landmine setup with a barbell. We were able to open up a new kind of, uh, a whole new level of accessory lift that they thought would be off limits when working in in a pretty bare bones uh, home gym. So that would be my answer, and one other thing I'll mention that's not equipment, but is a technique that I think is a little bit underrated in um, certain pockets of the fitness world, Uh, for whatever reason, I see a lot of this being used in, uh, you know, in uh, women who are training, Um, I see a lot of folks using B-stance alternatives for like squats and deadlifts, Um, and, you know, B-stance, you know, basically, there's a few different um, terms you can use for it, but... Basically, um, you're using, for example, for a single leg deadlift, instead of literally lifting your inactive leg off the ground, and inviting all the balance challenges associated with that, you just kind of lightly kind of leave your foot off to the side, almost like a kickstand. And and you just, all it's doing there is helping out with balance, it's not really contributing to the lift at all. um, But it's out there out of the way. And um, I've been having a lot of success lately. I've been struggling to deadlift because of some injury issues that have been going on forever. I think I might finally jump under the knife. I scheduled an appointment to go uh, see a butcher and just say, cut me open and do what you gotta do. But um, anyway, the B stance has been a a lifesaver for me being able to do a deadlift variation where I'm doing a B stance single leg deadlift in the belt squat machine of all things, using a handle um, on on the belt squat and bracing with one of my hands uh, to kind of help out with balance so it's a really weird way to set it up it's the only the only way to get to that exercise variation is to literally try everything else um so that that kind of is a a perfect snapshot of my desperation is that for me to explain how i'm setting up my deadlift is like three sentences right Um, but anyway b stance uh, i've had to use it or try it out of necessity and i think it's a little bit more useful than folks give it credit for it doesn't really i see a lot of folks who are in the kind of like bikini and fitness uh space female trainees who are using it a lot and i'm not seeing it much outside of that space and i I think it has broader appeal personally
1: yeah i'll give uh, a quick answer to this but these are really like opposite ends of the spectrum answer the first one is, and I started doing these years ago, I started lifting weights when I was 13 years old. And so I was in eighth grade and then all, all through high school. And then in the summers, um, you know what I would train for, for my sports season, um, in college, uh, we had this huge hill outside of the weight room and just simple things that you can do. So if you have stuff at home, you can utilize these, um, and put a barbell on her back and, and would do walking lunges up that hill. Um, with absurd amount of weights that would probably not good for us. Um, but things like that I've always just been a huge fan of, kind of finishers and to workouts, and a lot of these aren't necessarily going to be as uh, congruent with what we're going to talk about. Let's say for the the evidence based adaptations, but you know what? Sometimes uh, you just got to get the work done, and sometimes at the end of that workout, you got to know you're crushing it, and you find a hill, put a barbell on your back. Doesn't even have to be the barbell. Do some walking lunges up that hill, and um, you're gonna you're gonna feel awesome and miserable all at the same time. The second thing, which is maybe a bit impractical for some, but we have one of these in our lab, is a, a tonal. And if you've seen the tonal machine, uh, it is really a cool piece of equipment, um, and it can adapt the resistance for you during the movement from rep to rep uh, without you setting the weight down. Whereas if you're auto regulating in the gym right? You can change the weight after the set. Uh, this can auto-regulate the weight in real time on both the eccentric and the concentric portion of the movement. It's pretty easy on the joints. Um, I know if I had things to do all over again, I would probably do nearly all of my assistance work, probably on cables, maybe a Smith machine, something like that. Um, and using the tonal uh, and having it in there is, is pretty great for for a lot of reasons. So two opposite ends of the spectrum, one more new school kind of, hey, let's take it easy on the joints and and Kind of use uh, uh, this adaptive piece of equipment. The other one is um, my true self, which is uh, put that barbell on your back and do some walking lunges up that hill until you can't walk anymore.
0: Yeah, it's it's tricky because I think um, I'm of two minds about that that latter portion there, right? So, like, I do think it's unfortunate that as evidence based fitness has become a thing and there's a community built around it and there's a lot of PubMed-focused battles on the internet about who is the most correct about being most optimal. I do think that lifting culture has lost some of that kind of down-to-earth, you know, just do a hard thing, enjoy it, we're here for the fun, you know, like, I think some of that is missing um, as part of just, like, the experience of a life of lifting, which is unfortunate. Like, it, I think it's beneficial to have some of that mixed in for fun and and for the camaraderie it builds with training partners and things like that. On the other hand, there's a limit, right? And and it's mark my words. Every you know every summer or two, we hear about the NCAA strength coach who's always working with a, a Division one football team who gives like four kids rhabdo because the whole purpose of the workout was just to be hard and kind of make your eyes pop when you see it on the on the chalkboard, right? So um, I don't like the latter. The former, in moderate doses, I, I think has a place uh, within uh, just the life of a lifter, right? Um, I, I think you and I both started lift. I, I started lifting when I was 12. You started lifting when you were 13. I think you said, you know, when you're young, when you're 15, 16, 17, lifting with friends, like some of that stuff, you do it. And it, it was, it was fun and you learned something from it. And, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't go back and, you know, wish that away and say, I wish I would have done everything purely optimally based on the evidence we have now. Not necessarily, right? Like There, there was something to it, um, that was beyond just the, the nuts and bolts of your training. Um, all right, we got a question here, uh, are there any special considerations that come to mind, either physical or psychological regarding fitness and strength training for someone with a history of anorexia nervosa? This is a really tough one, because if you have a history of anorexia nervosa, and for example, you apply to work with a strength coach online, you know, a a fitness coach, um, Some folks will see that on an application and say, I really can't work with you because I don't have the clinical expertise to identify if we're falling back in the old habits, right? And in some cases, that's a prudent decision. In some cases, there's kind of um, an unintended negative consequence of that, which is that people who would greatly benefit from help with resistance training are unable to get it or really struggle to get it, right? And the only people willing to offer that help in some cases, are the more irresponsible folks on the internet who say, yeah, yeah, I'll train anybody. It's all the same. Here's the PDF I send everybody else, right? So um, unfortunately, sometimes folks with a history of anorexia nervosa, especially if they're looking for a combination of training with some minimal nutrition support, it can be difficult to find that niche between, you know, someone who can give me some responsible, minimal nutrition support without being a full-blown dietitian doing medical nutrition therapy. So All that is to say, there are things I keep an eye on, first of all, depending on the severity and the duration of anorexia nervosa, uh, one thing that's worth being aware of is the possibility for low bone mass and low bone density. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't lift, if anything, that means you absolutely should lift. It's a a huge reason why you should lift. But um, in some cases where we see very low bone density levels, we might be extra cautious about exercise selection. To make sure that we're not doing things that invite an unnecessary uh, probability of fracture risk early on right we might want to build up some strength and muscularity get used to some exercises before we advance into anything that may just be a little bit reckless for somebody with a very low bone density in most cases um, that probably won't be a, a major consideration the things that come to mind mostly with me first of all uh, if i were working with someone with a history of anore- anorexia nervosa I'd first and foremost want to make sure that we are not using fitness as a reframing of anorexia nervosa. You know, sometimes folks will say, you know, I used to have anorexia nervosa, but now I'm a competitive physique athlete. And there was never a gap in between. Basically, what happened was they continued having anorexia nervosa in terms of the actual underlying, um, you know, psychological ramifications body image, um, fixations, things like that. Um, you know, folks who are very preoccupied with their body image and perhaps have even a slightly distorted uh, perspective of their own body image, right? some some degree of, um, of dysphoria in that regard. I, I have seen instances where people just continue having a lot of the, um, pathological eating behaviors and body image concerns that they always had. But then they start lifting and say, well, no, now I'm just a competitive athlete who does physique sport. I'd be very, very um, conscious about making sure that that's not occurring because, you know, you, you can't just paper over anorexia nervosa by adding a few pounds of muscle and saying, well, I'm glad that's not a problem anymore because the underlying issue there is, is more on the, um, like I said, some of the um, excessive body image concerns and things like that. And, and you could still be doing uh, pathological eating behaviors and have pathological body image concerns while, you know, transitioning into something that externally maybe looks a little bit less like your classical presentation of anorexia nervosa. So I would look out for that. And then, you know, anyone who has a history of anorexia nervosa or anything under the umbrella of disordered eating, I just like to keep an eye on it. I like to make sure that we're not kind of falling back into old habits that I'm not seeing any red flags, anything that would make me concerned that some of those things are kind of uh, maybe they never went away, or maybe they are starting to reemerge. And I'm very quick with the trigger whenever I see that. I, I like to really flag it immediately and say, you know, if it were to happen, hey, I-, I have a trusted dietitian who has training in this area. I want to bring them in. They're credentialed. They they are trained and qualified to uh, to kind of chat with you. And see, you know, what our path forward looks like here. So um, I I think it's good to be very proactive and cautious about making sure that you're just kind of keeping an eye out for some of those things. And I would say if you're a coach and you don't really know what keeping an eye out for those things would entail or what you should be keeping an eye out for, in that case, I would say you probably don't want to be working with folks who have a, a history of anorexia nervosa. You might want to um, find someone that you can refer them to that you have a lot of faith in, you know, because it's important. I, I always viewed it whenever there was an application and I said, I don't think it's appropriate for me or one of the coaches I employ to work with you. I always I always felt some degree of, um, I wouldn't say obligation, but I felt like it would be the right thing to do to at least be able to refer them somewhere where they could get the type of support that they're seeking. Because I, I don't want people in that situation, you know, these are folks who um, stand to really Dramatically benefit from working with a qualified coach the challenge is finding the coach that's qualified and right for them And I think the more we can help out as a fitness community. I I think the better Um, Let's see here. There was a couple others. I wanted to get to very briefly. I I know we're going way over time here I appreciate you for being a good sport Mike Um, Let's see There was one really good one about Food. i'm losing it oh yeah 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 there, there, there is a good one here um is it true that we have a biological set point for fat accumulation do you think we have a natural set point for muscle mass uh i think the set point theory with regards to body fat in its most literal interpretation, I think it has been rejected pretty soundly. I I don't think anyone really still buys the idea of a singular body fat set point for, for a given individual. Mostly because if you read the set point theory as it's devised, literally, um, and specifically, you find that it leaves extremely minimal, almost no room for environmental factors to really dictate an individual's body fat level. Um, you know, it kind of, takes a purely biological view, which would mean, yes, it's hard to lose weight, but it would also mean it's kind of hard to gain weight uh, away from your set point. And what we see in the kind of temporal trends in adiposity ac- across a number of populations, it's just it's just extremely incompatible with, with that approach, with that narrative. Um, a much better narrative that we've written about many times in the Mass Research Review is the dual intervention point model um, or dual intervention point theory. Um, And that I've seen it written about by Speakman. I believe he developed it. If not, he's the one who's written all the really good review papers about it. Um, So John Speakman's wrote about this at length, but the dual intervention point model suggests that there's a certain body fat level for you that's probably too low where you start to get a lot of pushback if you try to get leaner than that. And there's a certain body fat level that's too high where you actually have to work pretty hard to continue gaining fat because, for example, your appetite just goes to zero and as someone who's done a lot of bulking and a lot of cutting, I've experienced both sides of that, but I can tell you it's not a single body fat level. You know, I know body fat level where it, it starts to get really hard for me to gain weight because my appetite shuts off. And then of course on the on the flip side, I think a lot of people are aware that when you try to get a little bit leaner than your body's comfortable with, you start to run into a lot of friction. So um, basically the 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 set point theory has been expanded to include a pretty broad range of body fat levels. Um, and then the way that you move within that range, um, you know, the, the, the range is set by more biological factors, but where you are within the range is more based on habit environment and, and a variety of choices related to health behaviors and diet. Um, now in terms of a set point for muscle, um, it, it that's kind of difficult to interpret, right? So um, clearly a person who never does resistance training is going to have a certain level of muscularity that is relative to their activity level. And you might say, well, they're not training. What do you mean? Well, not being bedridden is an activity level that's different than being bedridden. And when people are, you know, unfortunately in a spot where they're, you know, forced to, to, you know, stick with bed rest for months on end, even an untrained person loses a lot of muscle mass. Um, so I think our muscle mass, I, I wouldn't say we have a set point in the sense that we, we really have a, a lot of plasticity, a lot of ability to adapt to the, um, the the demands that we put on our body in terms of building or losing muscle. Uh, loading really does dictate where we're at there. An interesting thing, though, about a natural set point for muscle mass is that for reasons we don't fully understand yet, I mean, there are plenty of, of totally plausible theories, for some reason, uh, losing lean mass and even losing muscle mass specifically seems to lead to uh, a disproportionate increase in hunger during weight loss, and it seemed to be predictive of weight regain. So in a weird way, you could argue that maybe there's a little bit of a set point or some kind of uh, quote-unquote memory with regards to lean mass, which even extent... I think probably organ mass is more impactful in this regard, but it seems like muscle mass matters too in this. Um, and so in that in that regard, I wouldn't necessarily call it a set point per se, but I think the, the practical ramification is not too dissimilar from what we would associate with a set point, which is that until individuals regain a a significant portion or all of the lean mass or the muscle mass that was lost, that disproportionate elevation of hunger seems to persist. So it's an interesting area where, um, to be completely candid, uh, we don't really know what's going on there. Uh, we, we think that resistance training can attenuate that fat, that effect by, you know, uh, retaining more lean mass while dieting, but it's, uh, it's a really fascinating question. And I think we need to do a lot more work to, uh, to figure out what exactly is going on there. Um, and, and I, I think, I think we'll figure it out in my lifetime. It, it's important to remember for context, like People talk about leptin now, like it's always been a fact, like it was discovered in the 1700s. Leptin was discovered, I'm pretty sure, in the 90s. Like, like I was alive when leptin was discovered for the first time. Um, and nitric oxide was discovered, uh, well, nitric oxide was discovered as like something in the environment hundreds of years ago. But the fact that nitric oxide is the thing in our body that actually induces vasodilation and has all these other uh, physiological effects... That came, I believe, in the 80s, right? So like some of this stuff, like it's kind of new and we're continuing to to discover new things that are like pretty groundbreaking and pretty foundational. I wouldn't be shocked if we discover some kind of um, hormone or metabolite or something of of that nature that kind of helps us explain what the heck's going on with fat-free mass. Um, I don't think it's been discovered yet, but I think it will be in my lifetime. If you're listening to the podcast and you like to discover it, I wish you luck and I encourage you to do that. May my life easier. Um, all right, Mike, I think we covered everything in the chat or at least a, a huge proportion. Is there anything left in the chat that, that we missed that you want to cover?
1: No, nothing else that I want to cover. I, I was scrolling through and I do think we, we covered a lot of it here, a uh, good amount for this specific episode. But as always, uh, you know, tonight... Uh, I want to say that uh, how much this this means to us and how much we love doing it. I I, I saw a lot of people on here tonight. Saw a lot of questions, and uh, we just appreciate it. We appreciate everybody checking in. The fact that everybody wants to come and see us and uh, uh, and chat with us here, we love doing this. So um, keep these questions coming in for the next episodes, and and hopefully, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll there'll be a lot more questions that we can cover next time. But thanks to everybody for. Uh, being part of this and for your comments, and uh, I appreciate uh, being thrown into the hashtags. I'm new to the internet game, uh, but uh, I feel like I'm I'm jumping right in here, so I appreciate it. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I want to echo what you said. We really appreciate everyone who joined us tonight on Valentine's Day. Um, very uh, major sacrifice people are making to be with us when they could be elsewhere. So we appreciate that. One last question. I, it's there's just one sitting there that we we forgot to hit i have to i have to mike uh, very oh, got- briefly b- very briefly focused on hypertrophy you're doing an upper lower body split does it matter when you do lengthened partials should you do it mm-hmm. before your full range of motion work after or does it not matter um my very short answer i don't think we have any evidence for this it's it's too new in the literature i would say just my personal preference I like to do lengthened partials after because I can usually, for example, um, do a, a full set of um, you know full range of motion uh, repetitions. Maybe I'll do a few sets with full range of motion. I like to use these kind of at the tail end of my final set for an exercise um, just because after I do my last full range of motion repetition, I can usually do some lengthened partials um, before I hit failure, uh, in that regard. So I like to do them after, what do you think, Mike?
1: I was going to say the same thing. So if you're, if you're doing them before the fatigue component, that's probably going to come along with It's going to be quite high. And so when you then go to the other work, that work might be compromised. Whereas I think the length and partials, right? You're not so concerned about, let's say, performance here. You're, you're looking at the mechanism of hypertrophy that you're hoping is coming from that. And so I kind of look at it as an exercise order thing, doing this strength being specific to what you're doing before and getting the benefits of, of doing those straight sets. But then to get the benefits of the length and partials, you could get it by doing it before, but it might sacrifice that other work. If you're doing it after, the those probably the length and partials aren't going to be sacrificed by the traditional sets. So I agree with Trex on that. And that's how I would frame it in my mind. But the major caveat to all of this is neither of us know, and we just don't know. Um, so that's our best guess at this point. And, and uh, I guess I'd, I'd leave you with that tonight, which is there's there's a lot we don't know, right? So a lot of the times we're interpreting and looking at things the best that we can, drawing on experience, drawing on the literature that's out there. And trying to interpret it uh, as best possible. And so that's how I would say uh, in terms of the, the order of the length and partials for the moment. But we do not know. Uh, so uh, hopefully we, we gave out a lot of master's thesis topics on office hours. And I think we just came up with another one.
0: Oh, yeah. that's like our, our secondary purpose here. We're just throwing out master's thesis topics left and right. Um, all right. Mike, I told you we'd be off here a lot earlier, so I appreciate you for being a good sport, um, but Probably. there were just a lot of really good questions tonight, and we did hit a PR in terms of the number of folks who joined us live. One issue, which is my fault, I forgot to twist everyone's arms, the The viewer-to-like ratio is not great tonight, so on your way out, folks, um, we don't ask you to drop a dollar in the hat, we don't ask for much. We do ask you to just hit the little thumbs up, hit the like button, uh, on your way out, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you know the the ratio we always have to keep an eye on it. And so tonight we we got a lot of viewers, which we greatly appreciate, but we need to get those likes as well. So on your way out, please do hit the like button. Um, and you know, as always, I appreciate you for joining us tonight. I will be back in exactly one week on February twenty first. Um, this uh, this episode, of course, as always, is going to go out to all our podcast feeds in a few days, but you're listening right now live on YouTube, you know that's the way to get it. Uh, I will see you in exactly one week. I'm not sure who my co-host is going to be, but it's going to be someone from the mass team. So you know, it's going to be somebody great. Everyone have a lovely evening and I will see you in exactly one week.